Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Dr. James K.A. Smith. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, I've seen you uh, go by Jamie some, James as well. Jamie? Yeah, please call me Jamie. Okay. Now, you've got a couple extra, an extra letter there in the middle of your name, so it makes you sound very regal. Yeah. Well, when your name is James Smith, you need something a little bit crazy to jazz it up, right? Really? Yeah. Is that what it was? Did- I guess that's what my parents were thinking. It's, it's, uh, I'm named after my two Scottish grandfathers, Kenneth and Alexander. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fancy. Where, where are you from originally? Southwestern Ontario in Canada, not far from Toronto. Uh-oh. So are you officially a just a Canadian visiting the States, or have you gotten citizenship? I am a resident alien with a green Uh-oh. card, uh, and so happily am not burdened by having to vote in this year's election. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to have someone in charge who can off the top of his head describe like complex computer issues like your guy did not too long ago right <laughs> yeah was right it, was it quantum computing or something yeah right <laughs> yeah did did you guys pick him to be the prime minister just because he's better looking than every other politician he is uh quite the heartthrob isn't he he also has yeah. a very 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 famous father who was Probably one of the most uh, significant prime ministers of Canada in the past. So he comes from a long family line. So do you think his dad had more influence on him getting elected or his hair? I think it was it was like a match made in heaven. Yeah. He is a dreamboat. I'll give him yes. that much. Yes. Okay, so I um, do this podcast. So I get books that just show up magically through the mail every once nice. in a while or pretty often. And when your book came in, you won me over because you have a tip of the hat to uh, a book that I absolutely love in the subtitle, The Power yeah. of Habit. I absolutely, it's, a, it's a book that uh, Charles Duhigg wrote, yeah. and uh, are you picking up a copy of it right now? Well, I uh, know I just uh, – I was. Uh, oh, you're looking up your own book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had to remind myself of the subtitle. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do you know what it is? The Look at me, eyes up here. Habit. Yeah, the spiritual power. There of it habit. is. You got it. It was you actually got quite it. intentional because um, I had also read Duhigg's book and found it really helpful in sort of recovering pretty ancient notions of habit and practice uh, that philosophers have talked about for 2,000 years. So we even, I remember the first time I tweeted out Word when we finalized the title and subtitle, I noticed he somehow he caught it on Twitter and said, hey, love the subtitle. Really? Uh, yeah, it was very cool. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I, um, I, I love the book. He, I think he has a new one that just came out. I got an email about it. He does, it and yes. I, I haven't read it yet, but uh, that Power of Habit, it's brilliant. Like he... I forget exactly what the language was, but he basically says every habit is broken down to like you have a cue, you have what is it, the behavior, and then the reward. And yes, it's, right. It's right. just a really basic way of thinking. Okay, what is, and so you have to think of breaking habits as like, okay, what's the cue, what's the reward, and that's yeah. how you're going to determine what the behaviors are going to be. And also how to adopt habits, right? Yeah. Uh, so that habits aren't all bad. It's, it's, uh, gives you a way to sort of, find an angle into better habits. And so, yeah, yeah, a lot of what I'm interested in in the book is kind of recovering that dynamic of habit for the spiritual life. I think Protestants have had an allergy to that for a long time, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that would be allergy? I think we, um, we associate habit language 
with sort of either two things, kind of rote ritual and just sort of going through the motions and that seems like superstition and we're rightly critical of that. Or I think habit language sounds like works hmm. uh, and, and works righteousness. And so we get worried that this sounds like us doing stuff to earn salvation. I think both of those are misperceptions, but it's, um, it, it's an understandable hang up that we have. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm trying to kind of walk people back from the ledge in that respect. Yeah. So, okay. So if someone, uh, they haven't read your book, they don't know what's going on and they hear this and they go, um, yeah, it just kind of seems like empty rituals. If we're, if you're just going to talk about doing these habits over and over again, what's your elevator pitch to say, no, 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 habits are, are more than just quote unquote empty rituals. Yeah. I, I mean, my first, the, the kind of baseline is realizing that human beings are creatures of habit and God made us that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the question isn't whether or not you're going to have habits, it's which. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, we have to become much more intentional for, for me, the habit is the, the internal disposition that you acquire, right? This sort of, uh, um, default orientation that you learn. But the way you acquire the habits is by being immersed in practices and rhythms and routines and rituals that shape you. And um, I think that it's precisely because Protestants have been nervous about habits uh, that we have also completely overlooked how much our habits are shaped by cultural rituals. Yeah. And so we end up getting deformed in the process. Yeah. Yeah, and I com completely buy into we're creatures of habits that I, I, I am. I eat the same thing for breakfast, and I have for years. So I, I am a complete creature. I eat the same thing every day. I do. I mean, I, I just moved six or seven months ago. One of the two, I don't remember which, but that was like earth shattering to me because I got out of my routine. So sure. more than probably most people, I love and respect rituals and habits. And so I like this idea of like you change your rituals, you change your practices, and that determines who you are. So I completely buy into this, and I assume there are some people who don't have the same proclivity for rituals like I do that would hear this and go, okay, if you want to talk about changing who we are, you change your practices, and you, you encourage people to imitate in some ways. People might hear that and go, like, the fake it till you make it kind of thing, and go, okay, so you're just trying to get us to, to do different rituals. Where is God in the midst of this? They might hear this as just okay, we're just habits in that we're not even inviting God to be a part of this process of changing us. And you come from a yeah. Pentecostal background, right? Uh, Pentecostal background, but I'm in the Reformed tradition. Yeah. Well, if you're Pentecostal, I mean, you've got a whole lot of Holy Spirit with you anyway. Residual, you can't get rid yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah, so. yeah, no, yeah no. exactly. You can't wash it no. off. Uh, no, and I would still happily identify as charismatic. I guess the thing is, I, I think that that worry comes from a false dichotomy, mm -hmm. that it's either the Spirit or the practices, whereas what I'm suggesting is it is spirit-empowered practices, which is how God gets hold of us, right? And I, maybe the we probably need to go down one more level, which is the whole first part of my book is arguing that uh, you can't think your way to holiness mm -hmm. because um, you are more than what you know, you are more than what you think, you are more than what you believe, you are what you love, you are what you want. And so... Um, those wants, those hungers, those longings that really animate you and orient you, those are formed by habit-forming practices. Mm -hmm. and, and those are either going to be the kind of liturgies and rituals of culture that are training you to love the wrong things, or God invites you into the body of Christ, which is this 
alternative habit forming love shaping community of the spirit where you kind of the spirit practices you into the kingdom of mm-hmm. god uh, it's not this it's it's getting over the kind of um what would you say sort of lightning bolt view of sanctification and realizing that god is faithfully present in the practices of the body of christ yeah. So you just jumped right in there and said it's not just your thinking that changes you. And I think for some of us that's going to be a hard you know, pill to swallow because, you know, we are, you know, your book traces us back to Descartes. We are children of this idea that I think therefore I am and that we're thinking beings. And what I think becomes what I do. Um, if I'm trying to move past or maybe add more to just that way of understanding who I am is it's just what I think, how would you help me get there? Why do you think it's not just your thinking that changes and shapes you? Be- because I think we all have had the experience of not doing what we know, right? Or we, we've all experienced this gap between knowing what we ought to do, believing what we ought to do, and then doing something yeah. else, right? So you, you hear this, this you know, mind-blowing sermon on a, on a Sunday, and you're like, totally intellectually convinced and you're totally convicted and you wake up Monday morning and you say, everything's going to be different. And Tuesday, you're right back to at, at the old patterns. That's because you can't think your way to holiness, right? So you, information isn't enough. I'm not saying it's unimportant. It's just not enough to actually kind of re-index, reorient your loves and, and longings. That That's a sort of you have to be rehabituated, yeah. we would say, right? You have to acquire these new habits. For, for me, this hit home when um, for years and years, my wife kept trying to get me to eat better and, and eat healthier and things like that. And um, like any obstinate husband, I didn't really <laughs> pay attention. Um, but then I, I started reading this fantastic book by Wendell Berry called Bringing It to the Table, which is this vision of sort of healthy eating and just eating and all these kinds of things. And I'm like, I'm reading this and my mind is blown away and I'm totally convicted and convinced. Right. And so I agree with him and all these things. And then one day I realize, as I'm gobbling up this book, I'm sitting in the food court at Costco, <laughs> which is like everything that is wrong with the world. If you believe what Bundleberry believes. So, so there was this gap between what I knew, what I believed, right. What I would even argue and what I was doing and I think that's the gap of habit. And, and I think sanctification is the adventure with the spirit that, that br- brings that gap closer and closer yeah. together, right? That God is closing the gap between what we know and what we do. Uh, but the way to close that gap is by learning these new yeah. habits. So when, when I read that story that you, you write in the book about the hot dog and Wendell Berry and the Costco, the first thought that came into my mind is my, my wife used to be a uh, neonatal ICU nurse. And she would have these nurses who are obviously very smart people. And on their breaks, what do they do? They go outside and they smoke a cigarette. Even though they know, this, like you, you shouldn't do that. Sure. It's not good for you. And your job is to make people healthy. Totally. But there's a gap between what you know and what you do. And... It made me feel yeah. better hearing you say that about, you know, a great sermon doesn't mean that you're going to be changed on Tuesday because as a pastor, I used to think it's because my sermons weren't great. But what I hear you saying is my sermons are great. People just aren't good people. And so it's their fault, not <laughs> my fault. So total depravity. Yeah, so, yeah, that absolutely should be your Perfect. takeaway. Perfect, I got it. <laughs> okay, so we're trying to work on, like, habits. And another word that you use for habit in the book is virtues. And that I, yes. you, you reference Aquinas who says that there is an inverse 
uh, proportional, proportional relationship between virtue and law. So the more that like, these habits or virtues are formed in you, the less law that you need. It's like if, if you're like a, an experienced marathon runner, you don't ha- need to have a coach or a buddy to, to call you every morning and say, hey, go run, because that's just your, your habit or you call it your virtue. Um, how, how do people need to understand, like, okay, I'm working towards virtues like, to change who I am instead of just trying to live up to a law? Yeah. So the difference is think of a virtue is when this now becomes an internal disposition that sort of bubbles up from who you are, from the very fabric of your character, whereas law is kind of like the stick, so to speak. Right. It's external and it's kind of pushing you and prodding you in a certain direction. I, I mean, anybody who's raised children is very, very familiar with this. Right. At the beginning, when you're teaching kids right from wrong. It's all law. It's all stick. And we all know that children are proof of total depravity. <laughs> and so when, um, it's not inborn in them, right? It's not natural for them to say sorry or be kind to their brothers. My kids are Texan. They'll never so, say sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess they'll say sorry. Is yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so, so it's all externally prompted by, so to speak, the law. But what you're hoping for is when they're 18, 28, 38, that that has sort of soaked into them. And now they do that because they're those kind of people, not because somebody's making them do it. And and someone like Aristotle or Augustine or Aquinas emphasizes even one more thing. When, when you've really achieved these virtues, in a way, you do these things without thinking about it. You don't even have to deliberate anymore, right? Like you see a situation that calls for compassion. And if, if I'm in that situation, I'm like, oh, should I be compassionate? Should I not be compassionate? Well, the very full fact that I'm deliberating about it is a sign that I haven't yet acquired the yeah. virtue. Um, now, uh, deliberating about it is better than not doing it at all. Um, so I think, I think this is a really helpful way to think about growth in the Christian life, right? Um, of course, on the one hand, the way you grow in the Christian life is by learning more about God and what God expects of us. But... That informational learning has to then be complemented by this formational dynamic where you're sort of acquiring these new dispositions. And, and that takes time. I think it's, there's no sort of arrival. This is, this is the ongoing adventure of the Christian yeah. life. So in one of uh, uh, N.T. Wright's books, he uses the metaphor of that, um, the pilot who lands a plane on the Hudson River. They leave like LaGuardia yeah. and they, like, I don't know, they, they fly into some birds or something like that. Yes. And yeah. People yeah. say, "Oh, that was like this heroic thing," but really, uh, this is the like the 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 baby that was born of like thousands of hours. This guy was actually like a, an instructor for other pilots to learn how to glide, and so he's practiced this over and over again. And and writes languages. It's not first nature, but it's second nature. Like you develop and you use that exactly. same language of second nature in the book. Like this happens because you've put the work into it. God's worked in you. Yeah. You've been shaped. You've been formed. And this is just the fruit of that. And so that's right. And I think it's important to just say, um, I, and this is only even possible because you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Right. So this isn't it's it's second nature, but it's also pure grace. <laughs> right. So it's not something that you can just naturally work yourself into. It's more like once God has given you a new heart in Christ, now the rehabituation process hmm. can begin. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard someone say that 
like the basic religion is like rules. Like you, you start with religion and it's just rules, it's commandments. But then on top of that, as you grow, as you progress, it moves from, from that to like the kind of person you are. And I think that's, yeah, I think you see that. Like the, you know, the Judeo-Christian religion starts with, you know, 10 commandments and then it morphs into, you know, the greatest is love God, love people. And then the Sermon on the Mount is obviously taking that to a whole nother step. It's just changing that. And it ultimately it's about love and like love changes everything. And you, and you say in the book, it's, it's love, not thinking that determines what you are. So why is it love that, that changes you not as much or more so than just what you think? Because, um, uh, what I'm suggesting is the, the center and seat of the human person isn't the mind, mm-hmm. it's the heart. So the reason why I think you get that biblical language of the heart is it's, because it's naming how much our action, our doing, our behavior, our living is animated by what we hunger for, what we crave, what we long for, what we desire. For me, all of those are synonyms for the word love. Um, So uh, to say that love is the kind of most baseline orientation to the world is to say that we're sort of hungry creatures before we're knowing creatures, oh, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, that's good. The, the word uh, heart that you use, is it the same that you think most people understand when, when they think of the word heart, when you're describing what you think the heart is? That's a great question. I um, I'm a little bit worried that heart language has kind of been co-opted by Hallmark and Oprah, and it's just this kind of soppy sentimentalism, which is not what I'm suggesting, and I don't think it's what the New Testament is about. When I'm using the heart, it's like, um, it's interesting. The Greek word almost names something like your guts, right? You're this yeah. sort of um, this visceral center of who we are. Uh, it's the seat of our passions, our longings. And, and what I'm what I'm trying to suggest is Christians need to not be scared of the word desire or passion, but to realize we are made as desiring creatures. Um, and what God wants to do is direct our desires to him. That's what our desires are made yeah, for. It's, it's for him. But the problem is that we love other things that, that aren't him. And one illustration you have in the book is about the movie American Beauty. And I found it just fascinating. Yeah. Now, I've never seen the movie in its entirety. I've seen clips of it when it's on TV. And so I'd, I've known, like, the whole rose petal thing. And I've seen that in you know yeah. pop culture. And I see it seen you know parodies of that and so i kind of get obviously that's part of the infatuation this like suburban grown man has with this like teenage girl who's his like daughter's friend which is super creepy yeah which is probably why i never watched the whole movie yeah fair enough you spoiler alert i mean the movie's been out for like a million years so if you haven't seen it it's on you but i didn't know at the end like it ties it all together that the rose petals are a connection to his wife that he's kind of fallen like out of love with whatever you want to use to describe that. And what he doesn't realize is his infatuation with this teenage girl really points him back to his wife, which I was like, that's the most Christian thing ever. And I didn't watch the movie because I I didn't, whatever. And the whole time it's like, this is a beautiful story about like many men need to hear this. Like what you're really longing for is your wife. And that's a great illustration to how we long for things that we don't really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I so um, I teach philosophy, and every semester I teach intro to philosophy. And at the heart of the way I teach it is a book by Saint Augustine called The Confessions. 
And what I do is after we read the confession, and, and the very opening paragraph of the confession says, it's a prayer. And he says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest yeah. in you. And, th and that's the sort of whole analysis. And that's a lot behind my book. So after we read the confessions, I have the students watch American Beauty. And then we do this whole Augustinian analysis, which is we try to find our satisfaction in all of these rival substitutes that can never truly satisfy. And you realize that behind them is your desire for God. Yeah. Anyway. yeah, there's the great line, and I've quoted multiple times in the podcast, is you know, every person who knocks on the door of a brothel is really yeah. looking for God. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. to quote Calvin, since I'm being very pro-Calvinist today, you know, the, the heart is, <laughs> you just gave me a thumbs up. I will give you the thumbs down when you yeah. aren't on for that one. <laughs> but, you know, Calvin has this great line that like the heart is this idle factory. Like we can take anything and we can start yeah, to love that right. instead. <laughs> there, there he's holding up Calvin's Institutes. Um, we will be uh, clearing this out of your mind on the next podcast when we bring you good theology. I kid, I kid, I kid. But, okay, so the book's, one of the main questions is, what do we want? What do we yeah. want? So um, if someone's listening to this and they go, okay, I want to know what I really want because I don't want to be like Kevin Spacey's character in American Beauty and like almost screw up, my, or screw up my life because I think I want something that's really not what I'm truly after. So how would you help someone answer that question of what you really want besides giving them some John Calvin? Well, right. <laughs> I, so I first... I first want us to be a little bit uncomfortable that we might not want what we think, okay. right? So, because if I ask you the question, what do you want? Good Christian pastor, Texan, uh, you know, right, what the answer is supposed to be. So you're going to tell me, and, and you, you might totally, really honestly mm -hmm. believe that, right? And yet, um, if our wants, if our hungers are sort of shaped under the hood of our conscious awareness, we might not realize that in a way we hunger for all kinds of substitutes all of the time. And so I think we need to, to feel the discomfort and realize, oh man, maybe I don't want what I think. But then this is also where I think the body of Christ is exactly the gift that we need in two ways. What, what I'm arguing is that it's precisely the body of Christ that, that is that people who are honest and confess the gap between what we know we ought to want and what we still mm -hmm. want. Right. Um, and then, but the worship of the body of Christ is also what teaches us to yeah. want, right. And teaches us to want God and re recalibrates our habits and our, our, our hungers in that sense. And um, it's also where you're going, I need you to help me to see the gap between what I say and mm -hmm. what I do, right? There's a communal, it's probably the case that I'm not going to be able to see that myself very well. And so I need the gift of others to give me that mm -hmm. discernment. So you're saying that ultimately, and this is obviously quoting Augustine, who, by the way, when I was in grad school, I learned you call him Augustine, but when you go to Lowe's and yeah. you ask for grass, if you say you want St. Augustine grass, they look at you like you're an idiot. <laughs> Just a side note there. That's, that's yeah, that's true. Is that true. <laughs> at the heart of the human predicament is that we are longing for God. Okay, we, we started in a relationship with yeah. God and everything else is pulling us back to that. But we also have like this uh, plethora of desires within us and... You know, your, your section of the Christian pie 
obviously believes in total depravity. And so that's, you're coming from a situation, you know, we're totally depraved. Uh, how does that work if the idea is that we all have inside of us this longing for God? If we're totally depraved, is that just saying that it's going to pervert that good desire and, and push in different directions? But even despite that, we can get past that depravity to get to the ultimate desire? You're shaking your head yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. The the Reformed and Augustinian and Pauline <laughs> understanding of total depravity um, is, is precisely that. It's not, think, let's think of it this way. The effect of sin on human creatures is not that it turns off our love. Mm-hmm. It's precisely that it, it keeps propelling it in direction of false substitutes. Yeah. And so um, what... And, and in that sense, redemption also is the kind of reorientation of our loves. Like it's still redeeming our human nature, right? It's affirming the nature that we are made by, are uh, that the, we are created as. But it's it's kind of recalibrating it to be oriented to the true north that is the creator. Now, and I would say, I can't pull that off. That's not that would be Pelagianism, right? I'm mm-hmm. not the one who's going to muster the willpower to do that. Um, that's a gift of grace. So regeneration is what makes it possible now to start bending my heart back towards God and His kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And so, regardless if you are a Calvinist or you're, you know, a Christian, um, you can <laughs> <laughs> you can believe that you know we all have this pull for God that is perverted, and there needs to be something yeah. to, to straighten that out. And uh, one of the things that you just said about propelling is a quote that you have in the book is that our longings of the heart both point us in the direction of the kingdom and propel us toward it. So I get the idea this longing points us to God. Kingdom of heaven is obviously where God is. It points us towards that. How does it propel us toward it as well? Well, so in this, uh, by the way, I'm not saying that there's, it's designed to point you to God, Mm -hmm. but the effect of sin and the disorder of kind of cultural rituals takes that compass and miscalibrates it. So yeah. now you're oriented to kind of idols and false um, But it propels you because there's a kind of attractional dynamic. Like, so it's, you, you, you feel pulled. It's almost like a tractor beam, right? Your heart is, is sort of longing to find its end and its fulfillment. And so whatever vision of what you think the good life is mm. that works on you like this tractor beam that also pulls you towards it and you act accordingly. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. And like you said, it, it can take you off course just a little bit. You have a, a great example about uh, a shipwreck from, you know, a hundred years ago where someone was working with a compass that's like two degrees off. Yeah, right? that's right. Yes. And yes. It, two degrees doesn't seem like a big deal to me, but when, you know, you crash into another ship and like, 50 people die, kind of a big deal then. Yeah, and when you keep go, it looks like just a little margin of error at the beginning, but when you keep going in that direction, you end up in some disastrous consequence, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, like- By the way, I really, I really appreciate that you've read the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true of every interviewer, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know what? The first, I started in this podcast a long time ago, and um, I interviewed Barbara Brown Taylor the first time I did, and she got done, she goes, you actually read the book? And I thought, yeah. Kind of a, yeah, you have no okay. idea. Well, okay, so, um, but we don't know, like, it's just two, two, two degrees or 2%. It's like if you're, uh, 
if you're putting down tile and the first piece is just a little bit off, yeah. you know, once you get to the other side of the room, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be way off. And you referenced the um, the speech by uh, David Foster Wallace, like a commencement oh, yeah. speech or something like that. That graduation yeah, yeah. speech, yeah, Kenyon, Kenyon College. Yeah, which was wasn't that like right before he committed suicide? Is that the? Uh, it was a, it was a few years. Mm-hmm. I think it was. 2005 that he gave it. He died in 2008. Okay, it's it's a brilliant speech. And the thing about the the two fish in the water that an older fish come. I love the story. I love. I, I tell. I've told it multiple times where the older fish comes up and says to the young fish or something like this. He goes, "How's the water?" And they go, "What's water?" Like you, you you're not yeah. even aware of the situation that you're in. And you have the line that you know we are constantly being trained, habituated, or automated without realizing it. So all this is going on, and a lot of times we don't realize that the effect of what we do, uh, the liturgies that we're a part of, even if uh, we don't want to call them that. That's, that's 97% of what I care about in this book, is, is just kind of giving Christians the eyes to see their cultural immersion mm-hmm. in a new way, and to realize that a lot of the things you do aren't actually just things you do they're doing something to you so so when my um you know we kind of have this joke in our house now that when the kids want me to take them to the mall they say dad will you take us to the temple yeah and they're kind (laughs) of mocking me when they say this but it's because i've tried to say to them look the mall is not a neutral site it's a religious site it's a cathedral of consumerism it's a place that totally wants your heart. It wants to make you into a certain kind of creature. It wants you to love certain things. Uh, and it wants you to think it's going to provide you with fulfillment and happiness. It's an, it's an idol yeah. factory. Um, and, it, and it's happy to welcome you. But when you get to the mall, the mall's not trying to change your mind. The mall's not offering an argument. The mall doesn't want you to think. That's the last thing the mall wants to happen. So when you start looking around at these, what I call secular liturgies, you start to realize, oh, man, yeah, there's there's all kinds of ways that I'm sort of being shaped and formed to want a certain vision of the good life, not because somebody's appealing to my intellect, but because they're trying to recruit my heart. Yeah. You know, there's a, a guy who had this great line, which you should have put in the book. I know you're probably a big fan, but uh, this guy said that everything is spiritual. And this guy named Rob Bell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yeah. He'd be a great person for you to quote right there because everything you, is spiritual. I was just um, preaching at his old church yesterday. Oh, were you really? At, yeah, yeah. Oh, at nice. Marcel. Yeah. Nice. That's good. I just saw him the other I day. I met his dad. So his dad comes up to me afterwards. He's like, "Hi, um, oh, I really appreciate that. I was preaching on religion and politics, actually." And mm-hmm. he gives me his card. And he's, I'm like, it "says Robert Bell." He's like, "Yeah, I'm Rob Bell's dad. He's a U.S. judge." A judge, really yeah, cool. yeah, definitely. Yeah, Rob was just down in Austin uh, two days ago, or something like that. Uh, yeah, I see him. Yeah. Anyway, um, so what? Th- hmm, I didn't realize you preached there. My Small joke's not as funny as I thought it was. <laughs> so you had this interesting stuff about the architecture of the mall. That that kind of has a very similar effect of like a casino, how you can't see the outside in the same way the architecture of a mall. You don't see what you call the moat of cars, but you see yeah. skylights that point you. And it's 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 very yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it's very it's quite most there. There's a history of the architecture of malls that shows that they were intentionally hearkening back to medieval cathedrals 
Uh, and so there's all kinds of ways that there's kind of icons that line the walls, right, that show you this vision of the good life. There's yeah. th- there's a kind of altar experience when you go to the checkout. It's wild. Yeah. So we have all this uh, adaptive unconscious. I think that's uh, a phrase yeah. that you quoted from uh, from modern psychology, which is uh, great. Like there's a lot of stuff that's going on. And so the problem is that we have this distorted desire that's initially for God. It gets perverted. We end up loving the wrong things. And so your solution to all this is church. Yeah, although not just any church. <laughs> the church that I'm actually a, my church. A lot of churches wouldn't be a solution. Not all, but... Um, I mean, the church that I'm, I pastor obviously is a good solution for anyone listening. <laughs> okay, I trust. Okay, what what kind of church is not a uh, is not the solution? So here's so this is um, right because right, I'm arguing that historic Christian worship is a kind of repertoire of formative spiritual disciplines that is designed to recruit the heart and love uh, in ways that other forms of worship won't. So, so really my argument is th- this is this, it's because of the spiritual significance of habit, the spiritual power of habit that we should now look back at what Christians did in ancient and medieval and early uh, reformation times to, to see the wisdom they had about how worship should be formative and not just expressive. Hmm. Okay. Explain that. I think, I think we largely think of worship, uh, especially since the last 30 or 40 years, we largely think of worship as an expressive endeavor. Mm-hmm. It's something we do where we come and show God uh, how much we love him and we show him our praise. That That's an element of worship, but we've made it the whole of worship. Whereas historically in the church, the worship, worship was understood first and foremost as a formative encounter where God was the primary actor and is doing something to me when I answer the call to worship. And why you would then be attentive to the form that worship took. If you only think of worship as expressive, um, what happens is is we become the primary actors and agents in worship rather than God. And, and you could see that, by the way, in some... If you look at the grammar of, of some choruses, notice how often we sing about ourselves right? Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Why am I the subject of this sentence? Uh, So I think it sends a signal about a kind of shifted priority of who is acting in worship. And what's really interesting is that concern was actually what motivated a lot of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation saw a late medieval form of worship where basically we were all just these kind of spectators and some priest was doing something and God wasn't almost nowhere present. And so the reformer said, no, it's God who's at work in worship and we're here to be shaped by him. I, I'm just trying to recover that sense. Hmm. So what do you think the difference of the person who is a part of a church, who's not leading it, who's a, a member of the church, and they show up, um, what is the different attitude that they have if they are making it uh, about God instead of them just being consumers? Well, I just want to say I don't think this is just about attitude. Okay. I think it's about how the, how the body understands what they are doing collectively, right? I, I, I'm going to um, – we're almost done, so you can be mad at me in 10 minutes if you want. But uh, um, uh, I, I'm mad for, right now. For, <laughs> <laughs> for, it, for my money, way too many – experiences that call themselves Christian worship 
are really just Jesified forms of secular liturgies. They're kind of performance models with an audience at a stage. And that, that very form, I don't care what the content is, that form is already loaded that tells a story. Mm-hmm. Because it's a story I've learned in other cultural liturgies. It's taught me to be a consumer. It's taught me that this is about making me happy. And what ends up happening is Jesus just becomes one more commodity on the shelf that I'm expecting to kind of add to my basket, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm picturing communities of worship where what's happening collectively isn't a spectator performer dichotomy but that worship is the work of the people where we are all taken through the narrative of the gospel over time i mean uh, sometimes maybe the best shorthand way of describing it is to look at how worship was understood in the anglican book of common prayer Mm -hmm. right if you look at what thomas cranmer wanted to see happen uh, in the reformation it's that kind of view of as really a kind of reenactment of the gospel uh, by the people of God. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm sorry, I might not be answering your oh, question. We'll, we'll get well. the answer out that I want. So, so two days All ago, right. you were preaching at Mars Hill. Yeah. So you were on an elevated platform in the yeah. round. There's a bunch of people sitting there listening to you. Now, yeah. we know that if we want inspiration, we can go to TED Talk or we can go to a daytime talk yep. show, as your book has told us. Yep. And so what's the difference of what they did you had control yeah. of 30 minutes of the service, probably. There's probably music yeah. around that and sacraments or whatever. What about the 30 minutes in which you were on the stage was somehow was different because maybe the other people are doing the exact same thing you're wanting to do as well. Let's just, but yeah. how did what you... So do- we should point out, I don't go to church there. <laughs> I don't worship there. I'm a guest teacher you there once a year uh-huh. and there would be there would be very important this might be the last invitation you get once they hear what you have to say right now <laughs> i understand actually it's no surprise because uh, um their worship leader who's fantastic this is an ongoing conversation we've had okay. so yeah i it's funny one one of the things i've done with my 30 minutes when i've gone to mars hill is actually press them to consider precisely why liturgy and worship should look differently than it does <laughs> it shouldn't be uh, a concert followed by a lecture. To me, that is not going to be deeply formative worship. That doesn't mean that it's not important to think. It doesn't mean that it's not important to teach. I just think teaching needs to be embedded in a kind of communally enacted uh, um, rehearsal of the gospel that you get in historic. Okay, worship. so give me an example. Uh, there's some people who aren't as smart as you. I'll give you okay. one example. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, and you're right. You know, I, it, it's partly my fault because I think I often take for granted a familiarity with something that is often very foreign for people. So I'll give you one example. So in my Reformed tradition, don't freak out, when this would be true in Lutheran, Anglican, Methodist, you know, um, you could think of worship as basically an overarching story of which there are multiple chapters. And one of the chapters is confession. So Every time the people of God gather around word and table and they answer God's call to worship, we then also collectively and communally confess our sins before God precisely to kind of own our brokenness, to to name our faults, to to confess the things that we have done and left undone. And, And doing that over and over and over again is an important spiritual 
discipline that pushes back on a cultural liturgy that says, you're great, you've got everything you need, believe in yourself, you know, all of that kind of cultural ritual saying a totally different story. However, the call to confession is also immediately answered, always, always, by assurance of pardon, by God's forgiveness, by the good news, where Jesus says, stand up, get up off your knees, you are forgiven in Christ. What I'm, and that, that's, you'll, you'll go to all kinds of forms of historic Christian worship, and that will always be there. So it's actually weird for me to go to churches um, where they don't do that. It's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what we're doing right now. What, what's happening, right? Because that's like leaving a chapter of the gospel out. And so um, for me, that's deeply formative because it also is precisely why, how could I not be a father who forgives when every single week I come to my father and confess my sins and he forgives me every single mm -hmm. time, right? So, so that kind of immersion in a practice like that. Um, it's, it's also another reason why historically, I mean, for millennia, the church has always celebrated the Lord's Supper every Sunday because it is this tactile, physical, visceral, sensual uh, um, immersion in the gospel's picture. Uh, and it's, I think it's deeply, deeply formative. I completely agree. I grew up in a tradition Fantastic. that we take uh, communion every week. So we do the Eucharist every Sunday. Yeah. What, what tradition the is that? The true church, the Church yeah. of Christ. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. sure, exactly. So we don't, yeah. we we typically don't have music, but you know, we do have we have communion every week. Yep, I'll take it. I'll take it. But that it. is Absolutely. like, like you said, it's a very tactile habit. If you were Except, a virtue, like you, this is part of what you do every week. This is who you are. And my my argument is, I say this in the book: you are understanding something about the gospel in that that you could never put into words. Right? There's a kind yeah. of there's a kind of unconscious absorption of the truth of grace that you are that's getting under your skin that you could never get into your head. And I, I think that's really crucial. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. I previously uh, started a church, and that was one of the, the key things. That I definitely wanted a part of the church I started. Is like this is a big deal. This is formative. This shapes us. This is something that uh, one of my uh, Episcopal friends would say. I don't feel like I need to preach these 30-minute sermons because the gospel has already been proclaimed at the table. Exactly. And so, yes, exactly. we participate in this. And so that's a, a habit that we do every week that's more than just a habit. It is, a, you know, a spiritual experience that is very formative for us. Yeah, and the spirit—I I would say the sacraments are the practices to which Jesus made a promise that the spirit is always in them, hmm. right? And so, so why would you not— avail yourself of them why it's like jesus says here's food every single week why would you not eat uh i, I think it's very powerful yeah definitely uh so so every week do that well i think that uh you're gonna you're gonna make me very happy because i i do it every week yeah so, fantastic now I, so the church i was previously a part of occasion we would have uh different worship leaders come in and some of my friends who are worship leaders come from a baptist tradition and so this was new for them to do like every week where we're going to do communion and, you know, the critique is that it just becomes this empty ritual, like we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation. W what is the response to that, where people say, okay, you do this every week, it just kind of becomes, you know, this rote thing you go through with your heart and your mind's not into it? Um, it's funny, we take the offering every week. <laughs> <laughs> or what, what if your wife said, ah, oh, honey, 
if we if we had sex every week, it would become really boring, you know. This would be, you know, we we would take it for granted. I was like, mm, I don't know, I'd like to try. <laughs> so yeah, I just find I I find they're very selective in what they think. Um, you know, I get why have a sermon every week? It's it's just an odd. It's an it's not a very good theological rationale, especially when you see the overwhelming weight of both. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and then the entire history of the church, including mm-hmm. the Protestant reformers. Yeah. You know what you could do? If you kept on quoting Acts 2 and talking about communion every week, you might be able to convert some Church of Christ people to your Calvinism. So uh, yeah. you're on to something. Hey. I, I enjoyed the book, and I feel like I was very civil to a Calvinist Canadian. And what? That, that doesn't happen very often. So no, hey, I, I appreciate the effort. Thank you so that much. That speaks your... to how much I respect you. So well <laughs> done on that. And uh, the book is You Are What You Love, James K.A. Thanks for checking Thanks for out Newsworthy Thanks, with Luke. Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>